love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that's easy, especially when we think of our neighbors as our friends and family. But what do we do with those people that we really don't know anything about? The Human Family Podcast hosts conversations with guests from local religious and cultural communities to explore a more complex narrative of who our neighbors are in the greater Santa Barbara area. Welcome to the Human Family Podcast. My name is Kenny and I'm your host. This week, I'm excited to bring you a conversation between our co-producer, Ala, one of our marketing consultants, Allison, and myself. Among other things, we'll hear about Ala's practice of dhikr, an Islamic meditative practice, and Allison's relationship with mitzvah, a Jewish practice of blessing. Although I've only known Allison and Ala for a few months, our work together has really made for easy conversation, and the two of them jump right into the depths from the get-go. They cover a lot of ground in this conversation, so let's get curious and hop in with them. I'm really excited to be here today with our co-producer, Alea Khan, who grew up in the Islamic Society of Santa Barbara, which is now located off the Stork Road exit. And with our marketing consultant, Allison Lewis-Tobes, who grew up in Congregation B'nai B'rith, the Jewish synagogue that overlooks Tucker's Grove off the 154. First, I want to acknowledge the history of the land here in Santa Barbara, which has been stewarded by the Shumash people for thousands of years before it was forcefully taken by European settlers in 1782. We humbly seek to be in conversation with the Shumash today as they continue to lead by an example of deep spirituality and community. Allah and Ali, I would love for you to share your preferred pronouns, how long you've called Santa Barbara home or how long you did call Santa Barbara home and what excites you about being part of the Human Family Podcast. Ella, do you want to go? Sure. Thank you for the introduction, Kenny. My preferred pronouns are she and her. I have considered Santa Barbara home my whole life. I was born and raised there. I haven't been based in Santa Barbara for the last decade, but it's definitely still home. It's where I go see my parents. It's where all my childhood memories are. So it will always be home. I'm currently based in Los Angeles. It's not too far away now. I am excited to be part of the Human Family Podcast because Santa Barbara is not only where I call home, but is also the place where I started my community activism work, my interfaith work. And I'm still very much involved in those kind of projects. And to be able to turn back to my hometown and do something home-based with leaders that I have a lot of respect for in the community is really exciting. And Kenny mentioned that we're co-producing and marketing consultants for the project, but we're also co-hosts. So we're doing some of the interviews as well. So getting to know some of the people in the community is really fun. I agree. I'll start from the beginning, but I think I circle back to a lot of what you just said. I'm Allie. I use she, her pronouns. I lived in Santa Barbara from the age of 12 to the age 18, although I spent every summer there as a kid. My family is from there, and it is still home. I currently live in New York by way of Chicago, but I'm just hoping for the day that I can set foot back in Santa Barbara. I miss it a lot right now. And I think I am excited about the Human Family Podcast for honestly kind of selfish reasons. I want to connect more to my own spirituality by having conversations that I think I gloss over a lot in day-to-day life. And to do that with people from the community that I grew up in, that I became an adult in, is extra special because I think my experience of Santa Barbara was very homogenous. Santa Barbara was a very homogenous place for me as a young adult. And I think beyond my own small Jewish community, I didn't meet other people who were from small minority religious groups. And I would kind of like to start doing that now. That's actually a really good point because I love Santa Barbara and it's definitely home. But I think what drew me away from it as a young adult was that I felt like I didn't have community that had diversity in the way that I wanted or in the way that I am in my own being. And so to have a project that's highlighting and celebrating that diversity in a city that is very homogenous is um, important. That is so true. I just, I've been thinking in preparation for 
this conversation today a lot about what it was like to be Jewish in Santa Barbara. And I think I distanced myself a lot from my religion outside of the time that I spent at the synagogue, which was like three days a week because I loved it there. But at school with my friends, that was not part of who I was because I think I sought to make myself similar to everybody else. And it is really exciting to get to look back with new eyes. That's a really interesting perspective since we both come from faith traditions that are minorities because I had the polar opposite experience. Grew up in Santa Barbara. I'm going to give away my age, which is fine. But I was in sixth grade on September 11th. And that very much colored the way in which I was interacting with the Santa Barbara community. My parents are leaders in the community. They actually founded the Islamic Society of Santa Barbara. And there was a lot of internal and external pressure to represent our religion publicly. And as a young person, oftentimes that meant I was called upon too. So I think I started speaking at churches and synagogues and stuff around the age of 12 or something, including B'nai B'rath. And on some level, that was a really wonderful community building experience. But on another level, there was a lot of pressure to represent billions of people. And it didn't necessarily allow for the space for me to form my own relationship with my religion on an individual basis. So it took me some time mostly more as an adult to reconnect to my spirituality and my faith on a personal level and then see how that translated into a public facing sharing because the idea of sharing publicly was thrust upon me from a very young age. That makes so much sense. And as soon as it came out of my mouth, I was like, that experience as being able to distance myself from my religion is inherently a privileged thing because I'm white and nobody ever questioned that And I'm not even particularly quote-unquote Jewish looking. So it was very easy for me to step aside and just say, oh yeah, I go to synagogue on Saturdays and I work there on Sundays. And people would be like, really? And that was so easy. So I can't put myself in your shoes. What was that like at school? Oh man, that's a big question. I appreciate your reflection on what it is to publicly be identified as different because being a person of color, being a brown woman in itself is something to be said. And then also I started wearing hijab or the headscarf when I was 14. I was a freshman in high school. So it very much made me stand out. I think there was one other Muslim girl at my school who wore it too, but she was a little bit younger than me. So that came later. But there was definitely an othering for sure. I was very popular in high school and had a lot of friends, but there was definitely distancing. I didn't really feel like I had my space, my place. And I do distinctly remember several racial incidences. And I'll just give an example. Reading in the Santa Barbara and Goleta library system were a big part of my childhood and a place that I really truly loved. And I've always retreated to I'm such a nerd. After school, my favorite activity was to go to the library and read. But I distinctly remember walking into the Galita Library with my mom, who wears a headscarf, and my younger siblings, and someone calling her a terrorist and to go back to her country. And that was a place that I had always associated with safety and fun. And then all of a sudden, it turned into this hostile space. And that's not to say that those kind of incidences don't happen everywhere. But to be in a place where we're such a minority, just emphasize that. And it definitely contributed to my desire to leave Santa Barbara. And there are many memories I have like that. Statistically, growing up in Santa Barbara, when I lived there, I know that the Jewish population was something like 0.2% of Santa Barbara County. Do you have any idea what it was when you were there in terms of Muslim community? Honestly, I don't know, but it's definitely a small community. It is also a primarily immigrant community, which is interesting because there are a lot of misconceptions of who Muslims in the United States are. And there's a lot of racism that plays into it. And there's also a lot of xenophobia that plays into it. This image of Muslims being foreigners. What people don't usually know is that Muslim Americans actually are the most ethnically diverse religious group in the world. And the largest ethnic group of Muslims in this country are actually Black Americans. I see Islamophobia. And so this idea of being foreign or a new part of American society is actually really false. And the first Muslims that were actually on this continent were enslaved Africans. More than a third of enslaved Africans in the transatlantic slave trade were Muslim. So before the formal formation of United States as they stand now, Muslims have been here. This othering is definitely a form of racism. Yeah, as I think it probably should be. I looked into the numbers here and it says that 
0.5% affiliate with Judaism, 0.3% affiliate with Islam, and the majority of the Christian representation is Catholic, 35.7%. That probably speaks to our heavy Latino population, too, with the Catholicism. I always question numbers on Muslim population statistics because they are based on counting last names. Which, for the Mm. reasons that I just said, is inaccurate. Because there's this idea that certain last names usually that have association with Arabic are Muslim. But first of all, there are a lot of Arabs who are not Muslim. And also, Arabs only make up 12% of the world's Muslim population. And the majority of Muslims are Asian and African. And there is also a very rapidly growing convert population in the U.S. to Islam. So basing those numbers off of last names actually makes very little sense. That's fascinating. A similar thing is true in the Jewish community because so many people have assimilated and converted to Christianity. We have a lot of Jewish names, like traditionally Jewish sounding names, quote unquote, that are now just part of the very Americanized Anglican. And yeah, you get all the last names with man at the end. I could be wrong about this. So maybe, Ali, you can tell me. Um, I also have heard that as a form of protecting oneself or assimilation, even if the people don't convert, they change their last name. That's why my last name is the way it is. And we don't actually know what our last name is. My dad, that's Lewis. His family is Greek and Turkish and Welsh. And of course, they clearly chose the most American name, so I'm not Demopolis. But my mom's side of the family, we don't actually know what the last name was. It was changed at Ellis Island. And that's been, historically, we've started to try and figure out what that original root name was, because as of right now, we are the only family in the country with our last name, which is cool. But because of that, we've had a hard time tracing ancestry outside of the United States. I think it'd be something that we would all, as the older generation has passed away, something that we would like to know. I was just going to ask, is that a family project, like something that you're all interested in or something that you personally have been looking into? I started looking into it this year. My grandfather at some point in time did at least some very basic genealogical like searches, but Honestly, I think up until a certain point in time, like very recently, a lot of the Jewish community in the US, and I'm not going to speak for everybody, but has not been focused on looking back, but has been focused on moving forward. I think only more recently have I at least felt a need to like, especially as the generation that survived the Holocaust passes on, I really want to know, because I know my family left during the pogroms, so right before the Holocaust, but we don't know what happened. We had relatives. My great-grandfather had brothers and sisters stay, and we don't know what happened to them. We only know about the people who came to the United States. I can't even imagine what that might have felt like for him to go about having separated entirely from his mom and his siblings, but it's not been a topic of conversation for my mother or for my grandfather. And I'm more and more curious. And so I started to do a little bit of research about the last name to see if we could figure out what it was before and to see if we could trace it back to either Ukraine or Moldova, unclear which. There's such a history of displacement and trauma in the Jewish community and in a lot of other communities as well. And it's so common for families to not try to engage with that. So that process is probably really intense for you and your family to try to reconnect with that because it probably does involve dealing with some trauma. It's so strange. It's very true to hear it talked about that way, but that is so not how my family at least has handled it. Or I think a lot of Jewish families have handled it. It's the mentality of we survived. We are here we keep on going. It's the thing that we say every time we sit down for a holiday dinner is we are still alive. And that is so the mentality of it is just to like, remember the past, but you're plugging forward and you're maintaining a level of positivity that I think at least in light of recent events has not been super helpful for us because it allows us to distance ourselves from the very real anti-Semitism that's happening in the world by saying like, we have survived so far. Mm. I think it's interesting. I also find it weirdly frustrating, not weirdly, I think very acceptably frustrating then when Jewish people can't empathize with other immigrant communities (laughs) because it's so inherent to who we are as people and how we ended up in the US. And to be able to look at another group of people and say they are not the same as us when they have gone through similar processes to get here is 
deeply disappointing for me as a Jewish person. What you said about starting off holiday saying we are here and we're still alive, that just speaks to so much resilience that, like you said, a lot of communities have experienced a lot of hard things and are still here and super resilient. And I think your point about communities not seeing the commonality is definitely something I see as a problem in the Muslim community and a lot of immigrant communities that there is a distancing between people. And I think a lot of that has to do with politically imposed fears and divisions, but it does take not too much insight and a little bit of understanding, a little bit of learning and a little bit of listening to each other to really understand that there are so many commonalities and actually a lot of strength to be built in a solidarity movement. But there's forces beyond that are trying to divide groups and the Muslim community and the Jewish community divisions between them is like a perfect example because there are so many things that connect our communities just historically and culturally and even in practice, even religious practice. But there is so much deep seated fear and misunderstanding and that definitely I see it played out in religious groups but also in ethnic and racial groups when I think about that primarily what comes to mind is the divisions within the Muslim community on racial lines. After September 11th, the Muslim community was, oh my gosh, people don't like us and they're persecuting us and there's hate crimes. And the black Muslim community was like, yeah, and we've been resisting that for generations and we've been doing this and we can learn from each other and work together. And they're literally part of the Muslim community, but sometimes there just isn't this acknowledgement and so much of it is just rooted in racism that is so deeply seated within every group. And I feel like I could just go on a tirade about this one because allyship is a very important topic for me. In the wake of January 6th, I feel like it's just, if you can't hear it and you can't see it as a Jewish person, then you are actively unwilling to accept the fact that white supremacy is not going to lift you up, that at the end of the day, they are not there for you. As much as on a very surface level, you might benefit from it. At the end of the day, being a Jewish person and upholding white supremacist values is inherently hurtful to yourself. They don't care about you. And if you can't align and ally yourselves with other groups of people who are experiencing intense violence against them because of either the color of their skin or because of how they identify, then you are fundamentally misunderstanding the persecution that your people have gone through for centuries. And I'm getting very heated about it, but yeah. You're very calm when you're heated. Thank you. (laughs) I talk very slowly. Everything you're saying just resonates so deeply and you're bringing up January 6th, which if nothing else, that just illustrated everything. There was so much anti-Semitism that was spouted that day, some real violent anti-Semitism. It makes me sad to know that there are some people who are directly being negatively impacted and hurt by white supremacy, but still have this desire to be aligned with whiteness and power. Oh, yeah. And feel like there is like some sort of security there or some sort of path to being accepted by these very racist white supremacist groups. But the reality is there isn't. There's power in aligning yourself with other communities that have historically been marginalized and hurt. And for me, as a Muslim, I feel like it's inherently contradictory to stand with anything that is remotely looking like bigotry or hatred. Justice is at the root of my faith, and it is the core value to be compassionate and empathetic towards all of God's creation. And if violence against Black bodies and brown bodies is right in front of you, you're obligated as a person of faith to stand against that. And we believe that God is with the oppressed. So if you're going to say that you believe in those values, your actions have to reflect that. And it definitely goes beyond religious affiliation. Anybody who is a champion of righteousness is a friend or a champion of God. That's how I see it. And it's definitely been the way that I approach religion and spirituality too, is through this lens of justice and compassion for all of creation. Do you find that in the Muslim community, there are as many, in my community, I want to call them like self-hating Jewish people. Although I think that's probably really strong and may offend some folks. But I think if you are going to align yourself with those values that are inherently against you, then you are self-hating. But do you find that there's that kind of attitude as well? 
Sadly, yes. Definitely. If you're talking directly politics, then yes. I see some Muslims that ally themselves with political groups that just inherently do not have the best interests of our community at heart. But also a lot of it comes down also to, again, what I said about racism just within the Muslim community, um, mm -hmm. because there's just a lack of care that there are policies and things in place that inherently hurt a big chunk of the population. I think it comes down to a desire to be close to power. So there's this trope that I speak of that I think is maybe a little bit complicated by this trope of the good Muslim, which is the Muslim that's willing to assimilate to the point where they can be accepted into wider American society. The problem with that is that by nature of racism and xenophobia and Islamophobia, a Muslims will never fully be accepted by certain groups. But also it's asking Muslims to set aside practices that are literally inherent to our tradition, like to set aside the way we practice publicly with clothes or the way we dress or like public practice of prayers and to give up all of that to be close to whiteness and close to power is literally stripping one of their fundamental Muslim values. Basically this idea that you can somehow do enough to be accepted by powers that be that are driven by white supremacy that will actually never accept you. And in doing so, you're harming the rest of your community instead of standing with those that actually need the support and who actually share your values. A lot of it comes down to wealth, too. It's not just about racism. It can also be a lot of it can be about wealth and not acknowledging the very, very rapidly growing population of refugees that are coming into this country or undocumented folks or historically disenfranchised socioeconomic issues that affect a very wide range of people. People of color. I think it would occur to a lot of listeners uh, that this conversation would come across as hyper-political or something like that. And it was pretty late in my own Christian journey that I started to feel like not only did my faith tradition have something to do with politics, but that it actually at its heart, it was political. As I look at the person of Jesus, I don't think that someone who is going to be calling out religious leaders of the day gets crucified just by coincidence. I think that when I look at the Christian tradition, I see an embedded history of political activism, you might call it. And it wasn't just in the sense of political revolution, but it was also, I, I, I see Jesus's time on earth as time put towards both challenging political systems and challenging the spiritual framework that people lived from. That he was both challenging people to transform themselves and to transform the society that they were living in. And I'm curious to hear from both of your journeys, when did your spirituality and your connection to your religious tradition become something that was political? Because I think it's probably safe to say that it's pretty inseparable. <laughs> for for probably all three of us, that our values that we've gotten from our religious traditions inform why it feels so important to show up in these spaces. So I'm curious to hear a bit more about that and maybe how a custom in your tradition helps move you and motivate you to show up for causes that are important to you. I found it really interesting when you articulated the point in time in your life when you realized that religion is political. Because for me, at least, I think so much of being a Jewish person is political. Like the root of Judaism is argument, not yelling and screaming at each other, but discussion and disagreement. And that entire process in and of itself is political. But at least for me, one of the most unique things about being a Jewish person that I feel like gets articulated all the time is that you can be culturally Jewish without being religiously Jewish. And for me, at least the two things are pretty fluid. I am at a point in my life where I don't feel nearly as spiritual as I have been in other parts of my life. And I'm pretty comfortable in saying that'll probably change as I get older and as I change. But there are some religious traditions that are part of my faith that are also a part of my culture, like the concept of a mitzvah, which is 
a blessing, but it's also a good deed. And growing up, I had a mitzvah jar. We would do good things and we'd put something, I can't even remember what it was, either a coin or a slip of paper in the jar. And I definitely got it like from Sunday school, but it like was a very present thing in my life. And I think having a religion that's built on the backs of the concept, and it's one of the first things that you learn as a kid, is the concept of doing something for other people coming back on you in the form of a blessing, that it makes you feel good to reach out beyond yourself is like maybe my very early radicalization. And also, I think it's important to note that I am a reformed Jew. So my experiences do not necessarily reflect the experiences of all Jews. I'm amongst the most casually Jewish people, I would say. And that's where I feel comfortable. And that's what I like. This is a good question, Kenny, because I think Ali and I just hit the ground running with our shared perspectives with interesting personal nuances to them. Before I share how spirituality and politics tie together for me, I will say that to be able to separate yourself from politics or religion from politics is an extremely privileged position. Yeah. Because Ali, I don't know if this resonates with you, but as a Muslim person, my existence is political. I have no choice. It's not something I can change. When I walk out the door, just by nature of my brown skin, someone will have opinion of whether or not I should be allowed to live in this country. I can't avoid that even if I say I don't want to be involved in politics. I don't want to be involved in that conversation. It's depressing. It's a lot. It's whatever. Walking into a school or a job interview or really anywhere, someone there will have an opinion of whether or not I have the right to be there solely based on the way I look. And that is something that all people of color, especially Black people in this country, experience. And it's hard to distance oneself from politics when you have no choice. So I just wanted to say that when I think think about the relationship between spirituality and religion and activism or politics, immediately what comes to mind is this verse from the Quran that says, you are the best nation produced for mankind. You enjoin what is right and forbid what is wrong and believe in God. So action is inherently tied into belief in God and enjoining what is right is a fundamental principle of Islam. So to see that the rights of people are being trampled upon requires one to take action. There's also, so I'm trying to think of the exact quote, whosoever sees something wrong should do, I'm paraphrasing this, but should try to change it with their hand. And if they cannot change it with their tongue, and if they cannot have distaste for that injustice in their heart, and that is the least of faith. So there is definitely a lot of teachings about in Islam about basically if you see something that's unjust, that you're supposed to try to take action to do something about it. And I think about Islamic figures in U.S. history like Malcolm X who dedicated their lives to justice and the uplifting of people's basic human rights. And that has been a big part of my spiritual journey is what I like to call doing the heart work so you can do the groundwork my catchphrase these days, because I do think as a spiritual person, I can't separate the importance of my own spirituality and my own relationship with my own practice and my own relationship with God from any sort of public or community work. Because in my understanding, to do this hard work of fighting for justice, I need to have my own grounding. And my religion gives me that grounding. I'll burn out if I don't have that. I need my own spiritual practice, my own meditation practice, my own foundational relationship with God. I can't really do one without the other. My heart has to be at peace. And it actually gives me a lot of hope too, because yes, I believe that if you see injustice in the world, you should try to do something about it. But I also know that ultimately God is in control of that and God is the ultimate source of justice. So it's not solely on my shoulders to fix all the world's problems. And that actually gives me a lot of solace. And I see a lot of people who consider themselves activists or community organizers like really struggle with the very slow paced change of things sometimes. And what gives me hope is just knowing that there's a higher power that's in control, but also that I have a resource to lean on when I am feeling desolate or need a little bit of guidance. So my own spiritual practice has a lot to do with my ability to engage with very hard topics and things. And one of the Muslim spiritual practices that really grounds me is this practice of dhikr, which translates roughly to remembrance. And so it's basically a time that you set aside to reflect on certain phrases, usually tied to some of the characteristics of God. So in Islam, we know God by 99 
names and they are all characteristics that God is the ultimate version of those, but we in different ways can reflect those values. So like Al-Wadud, the most loving, Al-Rahim, the most merciful, Al-Wali, the friend. So God is the ultimate version of those characteristics, but we can reflect some of those characteristics in ourselves. So Dhikr is the practice of repeating certain phrases, reflecting the different characteristics of God and reflecting on not only your relationship with God, but your relationship with those characteristics and how you want to manifest them in the world. So that's something that I do on a regular basis. It can be done as an individual practice on your own. It can be done in group practice. A teacher of mine recently said something that I felt was really powerful, and it made me think about my personal dikir practice, the remembrance practice, saying, if you give people your time and attention, they'll give you their secrets. If you give God your time and attention, he will also give you his secrets. And one of his biggest secrets is your own purpose in life. In Islam, we believe that our ultimate purpose as Muslims is to know God, but there are different pathways by which you can do that. And our own calling is part of that. And so if you feel lost or uncertain about your place in the world, if you give God time and attention, then he will reveal that secret to you. And so that's something that I heard recently that felt very real for me, is spending the time and attention to formulate my own personal relationship with God. I love that because as a person who's deeply uncomfortable with stillness, I struggle a lot to like, quiet my mind in the mindful practice, but also even as a kid standing in synagogue, there's always a moment for silent prayer. And it was hard for me as a small child because I didn't know what I was supposed to be doing with that time. Much later in life, it came to me that whatever I was doing was probably right because I was allowing myself that silence. My dad's an atheist. He grew up loosely Christian. And my mom grew up not knowing she was Jewish until she was 10 years old because the Santa Barbara Jewish community was so small at the time that it was easier not to identify. So one day at school, there was another Jewish girl at Montecito Union who came from New York, who was a new student. And my mom lied and told her, I'm telling my mother's story. I'm sorry. <laughs> she told this girl that she was Jewish. And she came home and she cried to her dad and told her dad that she told a lie. Her dad said, that's actually not a lie. You are Jewish. And nothing really changed, but it was a complete relevation for her. And so when she had kids, she decided to give us the option of being Jewish or not. So we went to Sunday school and we went to Hebrew school. And I think pretty much every year when we re-enrolled, my mom and dad sat us down and asked us if this is something that we wanted to keep on doing. And we did. And we still do. And my dad will sit with us for Shabbat every week. And he doesn't sing along, but he drinks wine. And I think that experience of having religion as an option is a privilege. But be the reason why I love it and why I love being Jewish. And I remember at a very young age asking my mom what God was because it's a very difficult concept to grasp. And she told me it was how she felt when she was out alone in nature and it was quiet. And I think has been the thing that I find uniquely wonderful about Santa Barbara is that with all that outdoor space and all that time to be alone with your thoughts, if you so choose to take it, it brought me closer to my spirituality, even though I felt very alienated from it in my school settings or really pretty much anywhere else. And that is one of the things that I miss most now that I live in a very loud, very busy, very not green city, even though I'm surrounded by more Jewish people than I've ever been in my entire life, statistically speaking. I think I felt closer to God when I was home. That really seems to speak to this, what I would think of as a constant sense throughout religious history of both being able to engage, engage really well, but to also be able to rest well. And the idea of having those sanctuary places, like in the natural world and in in, would it be in Santa Barbara? I don't know, maybe Central Park or something in New York. I don't know if that's I'm about, a very... I'm about a mile and a half away from Central Park. Okay. Maybe two. Gotcha. Wherever, you're, wherever your nearest place is. And we, we try to create those spaces with our, our churches and our synagogues and our mosques. Mm -hmm. We try to create the spaces that are quiet, that can allow for that rejuvenation. And I again, I, I think back to in the Bible, Jesus takes time away from, from being with the crowds. And he basically says, hey, y'all, I got to I got to go pray for like hours on end. They're like, oh my gosh, we need you. And he's like, yeah, okay, bye. 
by. <laughs> and that is, it's an example of how foundational that need is to be able to, to take time away, similar to a tradition of Sabbath, Shabbat, to be able to take time away to, in a sense, recharge, but not as much, I don't think of it as much a recharging as much as remembering who I really am and who God is and remembering that connection because after, let's say, six days of being in it, it can feel relatively hopeless or just overwhelming and to need to come out and say, oh yeah, I am part of this bigger story like you mentioned, Allah. I'm part of this bigger story and it's not all up to me to fix everything. At the same time, that is not an excuse to not do anything, but that there's a purpose for the rest and being in community and allowing yourself to just be and that that works so well in concert with being able to show up and living out actively these values of compassion that are embedded in all three of our traditions. I also want to challenge the, you walked the term recharge back. I think it's really appropriate. I think it's a little bit, if what we're all agreeing right now is that part of being a religious person is that we have a duty. And I loved what you said a lot, like to be a champion of righteousness. If we're all agreeing here and now, that at least for the three of us, that is part of what being religious means, then I think it's a little bit of the airbag airplane metaphor. You have to put on your own mask first. And I think part of at least, and I don't know all of the traditions for your Sabbath, Kenny, but part of Shabbat is literally stepping back and taking some time to take care of yourself. And I think that's really important if you are going out into the world and actively combating some of the most evil and insidious things that you can combat, I think recharge is absolutely appropriate. This idea of recharging and Ali, earlier you mentioned when you were young, struggling to be still and have that moment. Honestly, I still struggle with that. So if you only had that when you were a kid, that's impressive. No, it's still that. <laughs> okay, cool. Because I'm like, I still struggle with that. And I'm actually very grateful that my tradition encourages me to do that because I don't know that I would take the time to otherwise. I do definitely agree and resonate a lot with this need to step back and to recharge. I'm going to complicate it a little bit by something that I've always wondered, which is like Kenny, you said Jesus stepped away from his people and was like, I need a few, I need to go pray for hours and hours and the prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him. And Moses did that when he went up to the Mount and all of our saints and prophets have done that. And I've always wondered, well, what if I'm just busy and I don't have time for that? And does that make me less of a religious, like am I less dedicated to my religion if I can't take like a spiritual retreat every month or something? But the way I have come to see it is that yes, I need my own personal rejuvenation time, even if that's just like five minutes at the end of the day or something, but also that my interactions with other people are a form of spiritual practice. My ability to be compassionate when interacting with a family member or a coworker or the person at the bus stop is a form of spiritual practice. And we have a tradition of the prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, that says smiling is charity or smiling is a form of worship because like our interactions and our compassion towards other people are fundamentally the basis of so much of our religion. So I feel like for me, my relationship with religiosity is that it's very much communal and personal. And that balance is really interesting, especially in this time of COVID when everyone's at home. So there's maybe a little bit more time for retreat and a little more time for reflection, at least for me, that's how it's been. I spend a lot of the last year taking more classes and integrating my thicket or remembrance practice a lot more. But at the same time, this communal nature and this interaction with other people is also fundamental to my practice. So I'm thinking a little bit on that as we talk. And then also, Ali, I just loved what you said earlier. So I'm just circle back to it. Your moment in the synagogue when you were young, am I doing the right thing? I love that my tradition teaches that when we pray, we're talking to God. And I know that a lot of other traditions have a similar framework. In Islam, it's very much encouraged to and actually required to memorize scripture as part of our prayer. But also there is a lot of room for just talking to God and just being like, what's in my heart? I'm just talking to you. This is what I need. This is what I'm reflecting. And that connection feels so personal. Like God is a concept that is so beyond and so hard to grasp. And I don't think our minds are actually created to fully grasp it. But being able to have a conversation that 
is genuine feels really important to me. And that's definitely part of the Muslim five daily prayers is like how I approach them. The part I loved that you shared, Ali, was about your parents allowing you to choose Judaism and checking in with you. And I know you shared a little bit of your mother's story and I'm going to do the same. My parents are immigrants and I'm first generation American. And my parents were conscious about their decision to raise me in this country so that I would have religious freedom to choose my religion and how I practice it. And I am eternally grateful to them for that because there is a lot of problems <laughs> is to put it lightly in this country around religiosity and racial justice and stuff but there is a freedom here to choose how you practice and that has been very important to my family and intentional in their decision to raise me here so I've developed my own relationship with Islam because of that and there's actually I would say an Islamic renaissance happening in the U.S. even internationally in Muslim majority countries people look to the U.S. and scholarship in the U.S. for guidance and as primary teachers because there's a freedom here and there's like an openness about talking about the relationship between justice and social realities and religion. So the religious renaissance that's happening in this country for Muslims is actually pretty new and really exciting. That's really beautiful. One of the most powerful things about being religious right now in this country is like you said, choice. My choices are much easier than necessarily every other Jew's choice to be Jewish. My parents always gave me the freedom to make that decision with no caveats, but I know other people for whom that would mean cutting off their family. But part of Jewish tradition, when you convert, is they ask you three times if you want to be Jewish, if this is what you want to do. And getting to say yes each time is so beautiful. It's autonomy. And I think a lot of religion gets misrepresented as rigid when what you just said, Allah, it's freedom. There's no compulsion in religion, or there shouldn't be. And I love that Jewish practice that you shared. I'm familiar with it, and I always really liked it. It's beautiful. That seems somewhat similar in many Protestant traditions regarding the idea of baptism for myself. And there are different, depending on what denomination of Christianity you're a part of, there are different theologies around baptism. But for me, I got to choose to be baptized when I was, I want to say something around seven or eight. And yet it's something that as my understanding of Christianity has changed and my understanding of the world has changed, there's a regular re-upping of saying, oh my gosh, I could look at the attempted insurrection at the Capitol and say, there are people who are proclaiming the name of Jesus at this event. And I so instinctively want to distance myself from that to say, this is not what Christianity is about. And yet I can't deny that in the history of how Christianity has manifested, that is a small showing of the kind of horrible things that have been done in the name of Christianity. So this desire to be able to say, yeah, there are a lot of things in my tradition that I am certainly not proud of. And so many people my age who grew up in the church with me, they don't want anything to do with Christianity. And that's their choice. And I think that's totally fine. For me, the choice comes down to wanting to be part of a tradition that has been in conversation with the best and the worst of our human experience on this earth for thousands of years. And to be able to learn from those traditions seems incredibly important to me as much as I would love to say, I'm going to scrap all that and try to start new, which again, for some people, some people have been so hurt and traumatized by their own religious background that they need to break away. And I totally support that. And I feel very grateful that I still feel welcome to participate in the Christian tradition. One thing that I certainly have come back to or come to learn over the last couple of years in my own Christian faith is the, in the importance of taking my faith out of the realm of abstract and out of this too globalized kind of view where there are lots of thoughts and there's lots of theology that's in the abstract realm. And that's, we have so many different denominations in Christianity, and it's usually about ideas. It's usually about words, not so much around what does it mean to enact the spirit of Jesus in our world. So taking my own faith from an abstracted place to a very physical, embodied, and place-based kind of understanding of the world. And especially since my kind of gateway justice issue, I would say, is environmentalism, the best way that I've found to engage in environmental care from a Christian perspective is to say that the places that we live matter, that it's not just, oh, let's try to take care of creation in general, because the thing is, 
one, you can't take care of creation in general. <laughs> you can take care of your little garden plot. You can take care of some places in your community, a grassland that's planning to be developed. You can say, no, we want to actually preserve this place and say that places actually matter. And that's something that for a religious tradition like Christianity that has been spread so far and that is relatively displaced as a tradition, it doesn't really have a place. Obviously, we can look back to the Holy Land where ancient Israelites and where Jesus walked and things like that. But really, there's a sense of you can absolutely be a Christian anywhere. And I think that's absolutely true. But I think that being able to reclaim a deep care for a place is something that's actually pretty important to any spirituality. And Santa Barbara has become my home over the last seven years. And that's meant leaning into caring for this place. And that means both people as well as caring about the geography and looking at the mountains and saying, these mountains are unique. These are the Santa Barbara mountains. And I care about this this place. I care about our beaches. And I would love to hear about how connection to place has informed each of you in your journey and maybe something particular about Santa Barbara that you appreciate as, as a place that you have called or still call home. I've already spoken a little bit to the importance of being outside, which I think I feel very acutely right now because I live in a studio apartment in Chelsea and there's just not a lot of outside. But the community... I made for myself really not even when I was a student and living actively all year in Santa Barbara, but as a young adult and coming back, there is just so much innate creativity in Santa Barbara and so much desire to make things that aren't just for progress for progress's sake, but that are actively beautiful and actively enjoyable. It's the way that we treat food. It's the way that we treat art. And it's the way that we celebrate all of it. I miss that because I live in a world in which we make things to get to the next place. And whenever I'm home, there is nothing in the world like walking around, even just downtown Santa Barbara, and there's street art, and there's music, and there's pianos on the street. And it is my creative home, and it always will be. Beyond the beauty of the nature, because I feel like I could talk about that for days, I think just really to be in a place where necessity isn't necessarily the driving force for creation is so unique. And there are only a couple of other places I've ever been. Spot in Israel, maybe, and maybe like Boulder, Colorado. It's just such a uniquely, like people just make things, art, music, because they want to, not because they feel like they need to. And I love that. I love that about Santa Barbara. And I don't know how that connects me to my religion, but it probably does in some way. I mean, creativity is probably an expression of the same spirit. That's true. I hear spirituality and just the way you're speaking so passionately about your connection with Santa Barbara and that creativity that speaks, I don't know how people want to define spirituality, but that sounds like some spiritual inspiration to me. And it also reminds me of what I want to say. <laughs> but thank you. Thank you, Ali. I feel like when I stop to reflect for even any moment of time upon the creation of the natural world, I'm in so much awe of the power of God. And I feel like everything in creation is a reminder about God's power and beauty, but we don't often take the time to stop and pause and make that reflection. It can be momentarily just looking up or something out of leaf falling. If anyone's seen soul, the new Disney movie did such a great job. But I think about that a lot. Actually, my name, Ala, means uh, a sign or a favor from God. And it comes from a verse in the Quran. Actually, verse is a bad translation because we call the verses ayat, which actually mean signs. Each verse is a sign. And so the verse that my name comes from says, which of the favors or signs of your Lord will you deny? And then it lists cosmological phenomenon. And then that verse is repeated in between. I'm looking out my window right now at a kind of rainy LA day, but the trees blowing in the wind and stuff, they all remind me of God. And I would say for Santa Barbara specifically, something that's always been a special place to me is Shoreline Park and Beach. We have a family tradition of actually going there to watch the full moonrise, like the Jewish tradition, Muslims use a lunar calendar. So that's also something I love is our connection to the lunar calendar means I'm very aware of the moon cycles and 
seasons play a big role in our practice, actually. So I love that those are connected. Our spiritual practice and the cycles of the world around us are connected. So we have a family tradition of going to Shoreline, usually for a late night picnic to watch the moon rise over the ocean, because who doesn't love the Santa Barbara beaches? But I particularly love that we watch the moon rise because in Islamic tradition, it is common to liken the prophet peace and blessings be upon him, Prophet Muhammad, to the moon, because the moon reflects the light of the sun and the prophet reflects the light of God and is our example on earth of how we should live. And so the moon always reminds me of the prophet. And then it's just really beautiful to watch that reflection over the water of the full moon. You might actually hear this from my mother on her episode of the podcast because I'm taking our family tradition from her, but I do have my own personal relationship with being a little bit obsessed with looking at the moon every night. I do it pretty regularly. And I do not mean to down our excitement about the natural world, but I feel like I'd be remiss not to say that one of the reasons I'm also excited about this podcast is because I do hope that it reaches a larger Santa Barbara audience and creates a space where more people are welcomed and accepted in the Santa Barbara community. And I say that in this context because we as a family have been going to watch the moon rise at Shoreline pretty much my whole life. And there was an incident not that long ago where we were like harassed and racial slurs, et cetera, were thrown at my family while we were just trying to enjoy the moonrise and have our space and our time. And that was really sad and really hurtful at a space that has been so important as a spiritual place, but also just a public park. It shouldn't really be like that. And that was a sad moment, but I do think that there are a majority of people who are actually very accepting and loving. When I was planning on what to share during this podcast, I immediately was like, yeah, shoreline in the full moon. And then one of the first other thoughts I had was, oh, I remember that time that we were not welcome there. So I just hope that efforts like this create more conversations about how to make people comfortable in the place that they call home. Beautiful. Thank you. I also want to say thank you to both of you for sitting with me. Because we work on the production part of this podcast, we've been speaking for a few months now, but it's really nice to get to know you on a deeper level and understand your relationship with your identity and your spirituality and how it manifests in the way you interact with the world. It's been really awesome to get to know you a little bit, and I can't wait for us to all potentially meet face-to-face someday. It's really exciting to have a conversation on a Zoom platform that isn't product or result driven, but we just got to talk and that was very cool. I quite agree. It's wonderful to be with you both. And yeah, we touched on a lot of different things. I hope that this will be appreciated by many. I'm sure it will be. It was a pleasure to be in conversation with Ali and Kenny today and hear about our respective perspectives on the intersections of spirituality, politics, and justice. The conversation was also an interesting insight into the different experiences Ali and I had having grown up in Santa Barbara as part of religious minorities. Next week, we will be having a conversation with Rabbi Steve Cohen, who is the senior rabbi at Congregation B'nai Please subscribe to our podcast to hear our latest episodes each week, and feel free to share with a friend or neighbor. You can also follow our social media channels on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Human Family Pod for updates and snippets of our upcoming episodes. Wishing you much peace, blessings, and light for the rest of your day and week. Bye.